This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or resolving conflicts we might have with each other in our homes, workplaces, communities, or conflicts between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. And today, we're exploring a threat to inner peace that I'll admit right off the bat might come off as a bit trivial to you at first, especially given all the large-scale turmoil and conflict in our world, which we often do turn our attention to here. But this being Black Friday, today's topic might actually strike a chord with some. This one is personal to me because I've become increasingly curious and a bit worried about the threat to my, and perhaps your, quest for inner peace by the intrusion to my brain, my consciousness, of advertising messages from TV, radio, online, from our phones, our social media feeds, billboards. The ratio seems to be for about every two bits of pure content we derive from our media, we get one bit or about 30% of attention insistent advertising. Along with the shouting, the seemingly purposeful annoying jingles, the mostly desperate unsuccessful attempts at humor, the unrealistic body image messaging and more. And there's just the sheer repetition, right? Even the occasional viewer could see the same single ad two dozen times in just a few days, perhaps hundreds in a month's time. Now, I'm not saying that all the products are bad for us, although many are, or denying the fact that the ads help pay for the programs we like. They do. But I feel the unrelenting exposure to persuasive techniques calls for an alert about, among other things, the meta-messages of the majority of ads. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough that I'm missing out on something, that I should be saving money or spending money or thinking about money. People seem concerned about children being exposed to, according to one study 20 years ago, 40,000 ads a year before they can really discern the difference between a real show and an advertisement. But what about the ongoing impact of advertising on adults? At that 40,000 ads a year rate, I've probably seen two and a half million ads in my life, probably two and a half years of my life being advertised to. As to solutions, now I have no hope of the messages tempering or reducing in my lifetime. So I'm a mute button fanatic for TV and radio. I'll mute, then turn to my partner for a quick conversation, or I'll leave the room for a few moments. You can pay extra to not get ads on a streaming service or fast forward through them on a recording. But ultimately, especially in the U.S., it seems like a case of you can run but you cannot hide from persuasive and often unreal, overhyped, if not brazenly untrue ads, trying to coax your brain and behavior in a particular direction that doesn't seem to have much to do with developing a culture of peace. Plus, I'm just concerned about the hard drive space in my mind that these messages insist on grabbing a hold of. In addition to my own ad avoidance solutions, others point to media literacy education as at least a mitigator, starting at an early age and continuing through our lives like good hygiene advice and practice. For nearly three decades, advocates for media literacy have been pushing schools to include the teaching of critical analysis of media messaging of all kinds, whether it's advertising, news, movies, social media. But the initiative faces obstacles from multiple stakeholders in many communities. We're going to talk with three media educators right now about media literacy in their classrooms, starting with Ben Boyington, a teacher and media literacy enthusiast working in Vermont, who says my concerns about all this would get kind of a shrug from his high school classroom. Well, I think, you know, I think you get a lot of so when you talk about advertising, um, when you talk about media in general, but certainly when you talk about advertising, oh, well, you know, advertising has these concerns attached to it. Well, they're just ads. We, we just tune them out. Nobody tunes anything out. 
We don't say, no, let me rephrase that. No one successfully tunes anything out. You know, we, I had this discussion argument really with a bunch of college students um, several years ago. I taught an online course um, in media study, introduction to media studies. I forget what exactly what it was called. And one of the things we, we were exploring, I showed them a, a documentary called Mickey Mouse Monopoly, which presents a whole bunch of Disney issues. And one of the issues it kind of presents is the idea of how stereotypes are used. And of course, advertising relies heavily on stereotypes too. What happened was they got upset with me because they love their Disney. And how could my Disney be bad for me? Right. And I'm not saying Disney's all bad. Of course, that's a foolish way to do that. We, we have to accept that we get enjoyment from our media as well. And, and we shouldn't squelch that as media educators. But, you know, they got really annoyed and really upset. And, and, and then one of the responses I got was, well, we're just kids. They're just kids. They're not understanding these messages. As if that excused it, as if that made it OK. I'm like, no, that's exactly the point. They're not understanding the messages because the messages are subconscious. They come into our heads. We don't think about them. If we do think about them, that's better, right? That's better. If we're thinking about the messages, we're reflecting on what's being put into our heads, then maybe we can kind of combat that, that deleterious effect or that soul-crushing effect. But if we're just accepting every media message that comes into our heads, advertising, fiction, music, whatever it is, without reflection, deliberation, questioning, challenging, that damage is much more likely to accrue and to develop. You know, this report that I quoted earlier said, while older children and adults understand the inherent bias of advertising, young children do not. Do you believe that most older children and adults understand the inherent bias of advertising? I mean, who's taught them about that if it's not in your class? My short answer to your question, do older children and adults have a bit better understanding of inherent bias in advertising? No. My flat answer is no. Um, the older we are, the more experience we have with television. The older we are, the more sort of skeptical we become. Cognitive maturation, right, says that as we get older, we learn to differentiate better between reality and fantasy. Although, as we've seen in, in politics lately, maybe that's not so true. But as we get older, we, we do develop greater critical thinking, both through training and through sort of life. However, I think what we do know as we get older is that ads exist to sell us stuff. I think we get that better, right? When we're eight years old, it's just another piece of the media message that's being thrown at us. And if it's couched in such a way as advertising to children using our favorite characters from our TV shows, which certainly happened a lot when I was a kid. I mean, in fact, when I was a kid, we had entire shows that came out of toys, right? The He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, like that stuff. The toy came first and then they made a show about it to sell the toy. So the show was an ad. I can, I can say both of those things. And kids will say to me, oh, you're overthinking. And I'm like, no, I'm thinking. And there's no over. It's just thinking. It's called reflection. It's called criticism. It's called judgment and evaluation and, and exploring ideas. And I said to my students just today, actually, I said to a group of students, I said, look, you know, and I stole this from somewhere, but I can't teach anyone really anything. What I can do is get them to think. And that's our goal, right? As media educators, when we, when, we, when we talk about the role of education in all of this work, is that it's our goal to get people to think. I'm not interested in protectionism. I'm not interested in banning anything. And, and, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying about inherent bias and understanding. And are, as we age, do we naturally get better at those things? No, I think that there are um, some of the work that, that some, of, some media educators I know do is they go into libraries and they talk to people who are in their 60s and 70s, right? It never ends. Media literacy is cradle to grave. Especially because now that we're dealing with all this other stuff, um, all these new kind of the new media land, which isn't really new anymore, but to me, it's still kind of new. Um, but the changing, the ever-changing media landscape, we're all in it. 
you know, I know people in their 70s and 80s who are on Facebook. They're being subjected to those ads, to those algorithms. They're being data mined, right? They need to understand it too. It's not just for kids. It's for all of us, especially when we start looking at how it impacts the body politic. You know, if we're talking about public health, if we're talking about elections, if we're talking about climate change, global warming, if we're talking about any any of the issues of the day are being impacted by our our engagement with advertising, our engagement with media, and our engagement with social media. We can't just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, right? Oh, that's just, just let go. You're being too critical. I don't think there is such a thing as too critical. And I work with high school students primarily, so my work has to be a little bit more balanced um, anyway. I have clients who are not in the building that I have to not rile, you know? Um, so I can't lecture, and, and I, I wouldn't anyway because it doesn't work. If you tell students that they're wrong to enjoy TikTok, that they're wrong to enjoy Instagram, you've lost them right there. So what you've got to do is you've got to say, well, what are you getting out of that? What's the value for you? What did you Show me something you enjoyed, right? Get them to share what they like and then steer or lead or ask questions or just let someone else in the room because somebody in the room is going to have something critical to say about Instagram or TikTok or whatever the, whatever the platform is. And by someone in the room, I mean another student, right? So if you can get them to talk to each other about that, that's where the power is. That's where the learning happens, right? Me standing up and saying X, Y, and Z, okay, there's something to that if the kids are into it and if I'm on my game and I'm doing, you know, engaging kind of talk. Um, but it's better to have the conversation back and forth. The, the advertising work that I always did, ad deconstruction, right, was always sort of this fun sort of almost competitive game of like we show an ad and, and we've, you know, we've built knowledge of the techniques as we go and, and what's being used. You know, when are they using beautiful people? When are they using, you know, testimonial or appeal to authority? When are they using, you know, comedy, cool music, the list goes on and on. Absolutely. Humor is huge, right? And then when you get the students to start noticing that stuff, they get into it and they're like, oh, whoa, I noticed that. Oh, I noticed that. Then you can take it into that deeper level of, okay, why are they using those techniques? And, and is advertising good for you? Um, oh, it tells me about the product. I'm like, but does it really? It's not just the message is to get you to buy the product. It's where you started with what are the underlying messages? Or I think you said make a message about a film earlier. What, what are those messages? Because that's the underlying stuff. And when we talk about media literacy, whether it's advertising, when we get into representation in film and in movie, uh, film and in television, when we get into representation, we start talking about whose messages, who's telling the stories, whose stories are being told, whose stories are being neglected, and what's the underlying power dynamic. And I think that's the part that's the most interesting and, and in a way the hardest to get to because of the dismissive nature of consumers, of most of us and me 15, 20 years ago right? Who had a very basic, like, there's something going on here. But, you know, I just love movies. I go see all the movies and watch the shows. Didn't have a lot of criticality going on. And, and so to get to those people who just go, ah, it's just a movie, relax. No, right? Communication has effects. Power. Whether we see them or not. That's right. Power. Anything we do has the power to impact other people and ourselves. The end point has to be, what does it mean? Who's behind the message? What message are they really trying to do? How insidious is that, by the way? And what can we now do about it? Because that's the next level media literacy, right? The next level media literacy is use the tools to do something, 
right? Go out and use them to make change. And my goal in, in education has always been and continues to be, whether media literacy or otherwise, to get people to think about what concerns them in the world, how can they understand it more deeply, and to provide them with them or foster in them the tools to do that work, to do something about what they want to see change in the world. That all sounds kind of platitudinous, but that's what I want. Vermont teacher and media literacy advocate Ben Boyington, and we'll have more with him later in our program. You can hear our complete 44-minute conversation with him at our website. Go to our November 2021 episode page at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, and click on Ben's picture for the whole thing. Next to Taos, New Mexico, and Pamela Perea, who heads up Media Savvy Citizens there, she goes into classrooms and also trains teachers how to blend media literacy education into other school disciplines. She picks up on using some of the questions Ben mentioned to help viewers of ads get their shields up, as it were. Usually asking the purpose really gives a space for exploration on that and understanding who the audience is, like who the target audience is, like what are the clues to know you know, was this made for teenagers? Was it made for young kids? Was it made for older adults? Um, and, you know, really asking these questions of author, purpose, audience. And Pamela, when they're selling a lifestyle, they're associating product with a lifestyle. Like most commercials show people having a great time and the product is there. Suggest a lifestyle and suggesting that engaging with this product brings you the lifestyle, right? Yes. And thank you for bringing that up because we see very clear examples of that in especially like beauty ads, right? Or maybe prescription drugs. Usually the lifestyle is everybody's healthy and there's like greenery in the background and smiling and having fun. While the words that are being said are usually like the side effects that are really going to affect you in the opposite way of what is being shown. So they're not showing that, right? So that's a lifestyle, for instance. And we see a lot of that in like alcohol commercials. You know, you can think about lifestyle in that way too, because in alcohol commercials, everybody's having a good time. Nobody is like passed out, throwing up or any of those things that we see some of the realities of alcohol, right? Nobody's showing you those. They're only showing people having fun and with friends in community and looking good and thin right. and all those things, right? Yeah. So that's a lifestyle. And, and car ads are like that too. And so what's the warning sign then to uh, suggest to young people or adults uh, about that? What happens is it's subliminally, even though we don't realize that that's happening, our brain is processing information, thinking that is the reality, right? So our brain will process information with images. We're being, being taken on a journey to believe something, to manipulate how we feel, how we act with certain products. And while we might not realize that it does influence us, so for instance, um, I was talking about prescription ads. They're not allowed in Australia. You cannot advertise to direct to the public. Yeah, they're not allowed almost anywhere else on the planet, I think. But And there's a reason for that. In the United States, that's allowed. And because what happens is repetition will cause, A, first awareness with advertising, but then, you know, having certain feelings towards that product and then 
using that product, right? And so now we see that high numbers um, that we have here with people using prescription drugs are higher numbers than in other places because people say with that self-diagnose, then go to their doctor because you know a lot of ads says, ask your doctor about and whatever the name of the product is. So then they'll say, oh, I have, you know, I have this and this and this, what's wrong with me? Could you give me that drug or this drug? Because I know that's what I need. So that happens a lot more often and um, it affects our health. It affects uh, our lifestyle. That's the part of the brain science. And, and I don't know that there's been explicit research on that. And I'd like for you to maybe explore that or talk about it a little bit more. Thank you. Thanks for asking that. Every advertisement or most media messages, right? They're made by somebody with a purpose, with an intention to get people to do something, whether it's uh, act on something or create fear or get them to have good feelings towards a product, whatever it is. And so celebrities, for instance, right? Like the use of celebrities and use of famous people um, to influence beliefs, thoughts, or actions, right? Or we have like experts with direct quotations from like academics or scientists, they present an information for it to look like it's true. And now we might see that also in, um, in the news, right? And we have to question like, what kind of expert is this? And then that Sometimes I look at that as even being a form of advertising. So I, you know, asking questions is really key to media literacy. It's not necessarily t telling people what to think, but it's really asking people to think. Is a good starting point, though, when you're talking to young people, maybe even a first question is, what you're about to see is a simulation. These are all, almost all the time, actors that are, going to depict something that is trying to suggest a mood. Everything in a, in a commercial is a fabrication, potentially an exaggeration. I mean, you should see how big the chicken sandwich looks like on my screen in my living room. It's not that big. It looks pathetic when you open it up. Is that a lie? Right. There are two realities. Um, there's advertising world and then there's real world. I mean, there are like food artists, right, to make the food look enticing and delicious. And the burger may look like not super flat and unappetizing, but actually beautiful and just like the perfect bun and the perfect angle and the perfect lighting. And there's a lot of money that goes into advertisements. Once we start you know, unpacking some of those advertising world, real world ideas, then it becomes really apparent that like, yes, there is an intention. And just having that understanding that there's a story and no one tells the whole story. That's another concept. Are young people kind of built for this sort of thing if you come at it the right way with them? Yeah, you have to come at it the right way. They're media creators. We all are media creators. Anybody who has a social media account and presses the word, the button like, that is creating media. Every time we take a photograph, that's media. If we share the photograph, that's media. You work with both, right? Where, where students are not just deconstructing, but also constructing. So if we're talking about advertisements, we might have an activity to construct an ad about something that really helps bring it all together because um, you know, like the National Association for Media Literacy Educators will define media literacy as the ability to access 
analyze, evaluate, which is the analyze and evaluate is the part where we're discussing, evaluating, how do I feel, what do I find, and create, and then act. We'll hear more from Pamela Perea of Media Savvy Citizens later in the show. There's also our full interview with her on the November 2021 episode page at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Click on Pamela's photo for all of that. Our conversation today is about the impact of advertising on our brains and on our peace of mind. More after a quick break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today, advertising, which, in my view, crowds our brains with messages that may not help us to inner peace or peace among us that much. I use the mute button a lot, but many of us just let it wash over us in our homes, in our cars, and through our devices. You know, I was working on a documentary about George Harrison of the Beatles recently, And in watching archival tape of him in 1971 on the old Dick Cavett show, I came across a clip of him that is completely relevant to our conversation today. Here's George Harrison in 1971 about American television. George, uh, (laughs) television in America isn't as mature as it is in England. It's It's very good in England, yeah. I can't Uh, watch TV in America, to tell you the truth. It's such a load of rubbish. Not the Dick Cabot show, of course. Oh, oh, I, I wondered. No, I... It just drives you crazy, you know, the, the commercials. You just get into something and it's sorry now, another word from... Mm-hmm. And another word from... And in the end, you know, they just put commercials on all the time. But you have commercials too over on your side. Yeah, but it's really done good, you know. It's really done good. They show maybe... If, a, if it's a 30-minute show... They'll have the commercial at the beginning, then the show will start, and after 15 minutes or so, it'll end, and they say, end of part one, ding, and then it goes into the commercial, and then the commercials end, and it says part two. Here it just goes, ching, 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 from one into the next. You don't know if it's a commercial or if it's the show. (laughs) It does similar thing. Let's say there are a lot of commercials. I'll, I'll give you that. That's George Harrison talking with Dick Cavett on ABC TV in 1971. George pointing out way back when that America's approach to commercial media isn't the only approach possible. And I'm going to talk with our panel about that in a moment. These media educators we're talking with today think teaching young people, and us oldsters too, to critically analyze ad messages, which may help us build up some immunity to the persuasive power the ads try brazenly to apply to our minds 
and to our attitudes about ourselves or each other. Next up is Allison Butler. She's the director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program in the Department of Communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She agrees the messages are everywhere. They are a huge part of most of our days. I think it's safe to say that if we happen to be working with a screen, uh, we're seeing advertisements all day long. If we happen to be going on social media for work or for fun, there are pop-up advertisements that are coming into our news feeds. Uh, if we are reading a newspaper online or if we're reading a newspaper in print, a daily newspaper, we are seeing advertisements. If we're listening to it on the radio, we are hearing advertisements. Uh, if we drive to work and we drive on a major highway, we're going to be seeing billboards as we go through the highway. There's not much of our day that doesn't have some degree of a brand attached to it. Mm -hmm. What do you communicate about all of that energy coming at us so constantly? I think the first step is to stop ourselves from taking all of that stuff for granted. When you ask about students, one activity that I do with my university students is I ask them for 24 hours to document all their media use. So that includes, but goes beyond advertisements. And just write down for 24 hours everything they encounter. And almost inevitably, there's like two things that come of this. One, they didn't realize how much time they spent with the media. And two, they get a little bit embarrassed. And some of them will say, like, I couldn't do this. I just couldn't keep writing things down. There's no punishment in that, at least on my end. In order to make change, in order to stop something or to start something, we have to know what it is that we're doing. So if the first step is a little bit of a frustrating one, I don't think of that as necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, I think once we know what we're up against, we might be able to make more productive or more active proactive change. It's true. The advertising industry wants our eyeballs and they want our attention and they want us to be, if not buying on a regular basis, primed to buy on a regular basis, ready to buy, um, and then dreaming, right? This sort of aspirational quality of what we might buy next when we get a better job or um, get a raise or get a promotion or so on and so forth. So they're absolutely setting us up to purchase more. Uh, but before we put a value judgment on that, we need to take a step back from it too. That's the media culture in which we live, right? The vast majority of mainstream media in the United States are private, for-profit companies. It is their job to make money off of us. I'm not saying that I personally like that, but once we start to understand and make sense of the structure that we're facing, then we might be able to make some different decisions for ourselves. Well, this will sound a little self-serving because our program is carried on public radio stations, but does that awareness lead to a conversation about other countries whose taxpayers put more money into public media that does not depend so much on advertising? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that we need to think about regularly in the United States is that this is how our media systems work. This isn't how all media systems work. We happen to live in a country whose media systems grew up in that private for-profit realm. That is one way of organizing things. This is not the way the rest of the world works. And for the most part, I think that can be really hard to wrap your mind around 
uh, for, for students in particular to wrap their minds around. For the most part in my classrooms, my students are United States citizens, which means this is the only media system they've ever known. They are, by the time they get to my class, to some degree, taking the whole system for granted because they haven't necessarily been exposed to or lived among a different type of system. When I have students in my class that have maybe spent a semester studying abroad uh, or students who have traveled abroad, they're able to put those puzzle pieces together in a different way. Uh, but we, you know, I think it's important for us to really recognize that this is how our system works. It's not how every system works. Mm-hmm. What about this constant messaging of you're not good enough? You don't have enough. Something's missing. You're missing out. Having to absorb that 40 different ways in 10 minutes, what does that do to us? I think above and beyond the consumption, which can be a very tangible thing, is the idea of desire um, and that idea of aspiration. That, that, as you said, that we are definitely not enough in and of ourselves. So it's also about purchasing, which we don't necessarily do with our dollars. It's about purchasing the idea. Um, It's about purchasing a goal. It's about purchasing an aspiration. I will be a person who fill in the blank, right? What type of product or what type of lifestyle? So bigger than the actual consumption, which probably lightens our wallets a little bit, is the consumption of a, of a belief, of a desire, of an aspiration. Allison, what are your even anecdotal ideas about how to protect that inner space? What ideas do you or your students have? With utmost respect for my students and their busy lifestyles, they don't always feel great about all of their media use. So one thing that I would use is I, I start off with myself as an example of saying, getting away from it, right? Uh, and I like to spend a lot of time outdoors. I like to do a lot of hiking. I like to do a lot of camping. And I will try and sort of model by example of telling my students, like, I'm off the grid this weekend. I'm going to be out in the woods. Um, I say this in part because I don't want them to think that I'm ignoring an email if they're trying to get in touch with me over the weekend. But also the benefits, right? Maybe they're just benefits for me. Maybe it just makes me feel better. Maybe it's not scientifically valid. Uh, But I know that when I come back from being outdoors, off the grid, no access to technology, I feel better. So I try and give them that space. See how much time you can take away. See how much time you can just sit and be quiet without technology. I also have them try and go as long as they possibly can without media. Some of them get pretty creative. They think of it as their sleeping time. I said, that can't be your sleeping time. These folks are raised on digital technology. It has been part and parcel of their lives since day one. They haven't lived in a world without easy access to digital technology. So taking it away from them is to some extent taking oxygen away from them. But in so doing, they can start to see how reliant upon it they are. There's a full 53-minute chat I had with Allison Butler from the University of Massachusetts Amherst on the November 2021 episode page at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Just click on Allison Butler's photo for the whole interview with her. In the second half of our program today, among other things, we're going back through our panel once again and ask them each 
Since this idea of media literacy education sounds like such a reasonable idea, how come so few schools in the U.S. have classes or curriculum sections on it? Back first to high school media educator Ben Boynton in Vermont with that question. Yeah, that's another hour-long conversation. Um, But I think there's a number of things. I think that we've talked a little bit already about the idea of just let go, just let go, right? There's a dismissive aspect. Oh, it's just entertainment, no big deal. You and I know that's not true. Um, how do we get that message out there? That's, that's, I mean, that's a, like a social force you're fighting against. Um, I think when we talk about media literacy in schools, we're fighting against the, the power of the institution, right? We're fighting against, and, and all the influences that come with that, right? So, so there's huge presence of ed, ed tech, educational technology in schools now to, to, to a degree that's quite disheartening to many of us. Those organizations, you know, Google and has Google Classroom now, which I use in my classroom. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Um, but Google is in the room. Google is in the conversation. Pearson owns, you know, it feels like everything and, and testing systems and all kinds of stuff. These companies aren't interested in us instilling media literacy in our students, let alone critical media literacy. They're not interested in us teaching students to question the very structures that that surround them. They don't want that. They want their place. They want their money. So whether by action or by inaction or by, you know, say lobbying um, or fighting to keep things in classrooms, those companies are, are not interested in that. There were actually, um, and this is probably 10, 12 years ago now, there were companies that were lobbying to use copyright law to stop educators from doing ad deconstruction. Because why would they want consumers who doubt the ads that are put in front of them, who challenge and are skeptical about what they see? So on a corporate level, that we're fighting that too. You know, we're fighting those forces that seem really, really, really big. I think we're also fighting ourselves in a way. I think that when we talk about education, you know, what is literacy? And how many literacies are there? Um, and, and in a book I contributed to recently, we have a chapter on, on uh, literacy, multiple literacies. And that's, that's one of the lenses for the book. And we know audio literacy, visual literacy, digital literacy, um, all these various things. It's, so literacy is no longer just the ability to read and write te- you know, text, words, language. We have to talk about media literacy. But we fight that because the reality in schools, we already have too much on our plates. There's another initiative every five minutes, it feels like. And so how do you... How do you add this concept of media literacy? I mean, the answer is you don't. You try to integrate it because a lot of people are actually, a lot of teachers are actually doing work in media literacy, but they're not necessarily calling it that. They don't have that language. They're not building it in the same way that maybe someone like me is saying, hey, let's do this. It's kind of a guerrilla movement, isn't it? And for some teachers. Yeah, yeah I think so. And I think, so the, the issue, well, so the issue becomes, is it a guerrilla movement? Because we have organizations who are, who are taking money from major corporations like Facebook and saying that they're doing media literacy work. And, and I and others in the critical media literacy movement would say, that's absurd. How can you take money from Facebook and pretend that you're doing media literacy? Your, 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 your work is tainted, like immediately. You know, like you can't do, an, you can't do a, a smoking study financed by, you know, Philip Morris. Like, that doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. So I have a problem with that, needless to say. But I think those forces are real. I think there are questions within the movement itself. I think sometimes we can't get out of our own way. 
you know? Um, I don't know that stalled. I mean, I think, I think it has not been what it needed to be, but I think right now it's actually really exciting. There's kind of a perfect storm with this sort of whole fake news thing that became, and Project Censor has been talking about fake news for 40 years, but they're not talking about fake news in the Donald Trump fashion, which is news that I don't agree with, um, right? They're talking about kind of what we're talking about, right? Like when is the news not the news? You know, when is it about advertising? When is it about uh, presenting a message that's about sort of status quo thinking or what have you, whatever political agenda, being a mouthpiece for X party, you know, political party. Um, so I think there's a number of things in our way. And again, I think we could do this for hours. But I do think that the, the forces that are outside of us that are pushing back, I think that's real. I think the idea in our society that no big deal is just entertainment is real. I've been fighting that for years. Um, but my father said to me, and my father does not watch television at all. Very rarely sees a movie, and and uh, not even of his own volition. It's like because some friend is there, and there's a movie on, and he'll. I watched a movie with him once because he's in my house, and I was like, I think you'll think this is funny, so we watched it. Um, but I said to him when I was started in this work, I was talking about the importance of media literacy, and he said, I don't even consume this stuff. I don't even do this but I still need to know about it. And that was really powerful for me. That was like a defining moment. And because of course I knew that, but for him to say that at that moment, someone who doesn't watch television, listens to the radio, but only ever NPR, you know, um, that's powerful stuff. When you can find a person who gets that and that feeds me and that feeds my work, but it also enables me to go to other people and say, look, it's not just because I'm saying it's important. People who don't even really consume on the way that we do also get that it's important. Where do we go from there? That must have been very personally affirming. So I'm glad you got to hear that uh, from your dad, that is. Ben Boyington, is there you know anything that we didn't get to that would uh, make you feel good about the opportunity? <laughs> so yes, what I'd like to do is I'd like to come back to that enjoyment idea. I want to make it clear to you know our listeners, and I try to make this clear in any presentations I do or in my classroom, that we're not in critical media literacy circles. We're not saying media is bad. We're not against the media. What we're saying is we don't want to ban anything. What we're saying is we want critical thinking. We want folks to understand and embrace the idea that there's more going on here than we think there is. And we want people to really think and go, to what level do I care? You know, obviously we'd like everyone to care as much as we do. I don't think that's crazy. That's just human, right? When we're passionate about something as human beings, we want people to share that passion. But realistically, what I want is for people to look at things critically and to think beyond the surface and to then be able to use that. And I don't care what age you are. I said it earlier about students, but I believe it for everyone. What matters to us? How do we access information about that? How do we judge, evaluate, question that information? How do we look at the deeper points of what we're doing? And then what do we do about it? You know, for me, the whole movement, if we're going to call it that, is about empowerment. It's about agency. And that's what I want to do. I want to foster agency. And for me, it's in the schools. I'd love to see media literacy, critical media literacy, fully embraced K to 12. I'm not sure I'd like to see it built into state standards and that kind of thing, but I'd love to see teachers really adopt and really work on it. That's a hard road, but I think it's really, really, really important, tremendously important. And I think that importance is what I try to convey when I'm out there in the world. But really it's about agency and that's the bottom line for me is what are we doing with this work to help people understand what's being done to them or for them and how to fight back against the first and how to 
support and embrace the second. Ben Boyington, teacher and media literacy advocate from Vermont. Again, my whole nearly hour-long conversation with him was a rich one. You can hear it by finding our November 2021 episode page at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, and click on Ben's picture to hear it if you're interested in hearing more. I think you'll be interested in what both of our other guests, Pamela Perea from New Mexico and Allison Butler from Massachusetts, have to say about trying to get media literacy into classrooms. We'll hear from both after a quick break. It's Peace Talks Radio. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today, pursuing my personal concern that our overly commercialized media system in the U.S. is, by its form alone, having an impact on our inner peace. If we're not careful and thoughtful about how we consume the constantly repeating messages from insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, beauty product companies, toy companies, fast food and soft drink companies, and on and on and on. It's coming at us every few minutes from TV, radio, and the Internet. Now, long before the Internet, comedian Carol Burnett regularly skewered the soul-crushing power of commercials on her comedy show. This skit has Carol in her home, in her kitchen, being constantly interrupted by people bursting through her doors and windows, shouting their messages at her. A good metaphor for what still happens through the portals of our media platforms, I'd say. Hey! You know, you're not supposed to squeeze the charming. Take something for this headache. Plain aspirin won't help. What you need is pufferin. Pufferin will relieve your headache in just 15 seconds. But, but aspirin's always been good for me before. But pufferin won't upset your stomach. Oh. Shoot, that sink's still plugged up. You know why that sink's plugged up, don't you? No. Using that crystal drain cleaner. What you ought to do is use liquid drain cleaner. I should? That's right. Just like this. (laughs) Now what? Hi. I want you to taste these two colas and tell me which one you like better. I I don't like cola. Thank you. I just just go away. Then why don't you taste these two peanut butters and tell me which one is smoother? No. Has it been since you talked long distance to your mother? What? Don't put it off any longer. Keep in touch with your loved ones. Call her now. No, uh, my mother lives next door. Well, then how about your uh, brother? I don't have a brother. An uncle? No. Then how about calling my Aunt Bertha in Will Chicago? You just get out. <laughs> then why don't you taste these two crackers and try to guess which one has real butter and which one is margarine? I couldn't care less! <laughs> hey, my wife and I were going to Hawaii on our vacation. I lost my wallet with all my money in it. <laughs> I don't care. 
I'd have had an American to press traveler's checks, well, we could still have gone. Well, what's that got to do with me? Well, can you lend us 1200 bucks? <laughs> well, I love that Carol Burnett skit because by its end, Carol is literally stripped of her peace of mind and her dignity, literally pummeled by the messaging. And I think we wouldn't put up with all those literal interruptions to our personal home space throughout the day, but we put up with it through the windows and doors of our media channels all the time. So today on Peace Talks Radio, I've been asking a panel of media literacy educators about how they try to prepare young people in the relatively few schools that allow media literacy into their classrooms, helping them to understand the persuasive power that is thrown at them each day. And by at least being aware and educated about it, they might be less vulnerable to ads threat to our inner peace, our sense of self, and sense of our place in our own communities. Pamela Perea is with Media Savvy Citizens in Taos, New Mexico. Here's more from my conversation with her. I just stopped having channels, actually. <laughs> I decided that mm -hmm. I would choose what I watched. You know, now we can have more of a choice. But we also realize that where we think we're not being advertised to is if, say, you don't watch TV, but you watch um, Netflix and, th and other streaming platforms the ads are embedded and so we still have to pay attention to to that and so really what it comes down to is the difference between being passive and being active right being active means i am going to turn this this off i know i don't want to hear the commercial I, not just am i going to mute it i'm just going to turn it off and turn it back on in a couple minutes well and i also think that uh, when kids reach a certain age of individuation and they kind of want to be independent and they're wanting to get a little bit away from their parents in some ways, but it's mostly because they want to be individuals. They want to have their own power. I think that if you introduce these conversations as a question about someone trying to take your power away, if you suggest or have them ask the question, is the maker of that ad trying to give you power or take your power. That might light a fire under young people's minds if they are starting to make those decisions for themselves and trying to create and protect their own power. That's a good question about power and taking power. Um, and it's an interesting way of looking at it because I think um, most ads are capitalist based. So really they're taking your money, right? That's the point of an advertisement. It's a commercial and it doesn't matter what technique is being used, but it's trying to sell you something, you know? And so when we look at something very clear about taking power, the themes may be like, oh, this is giving you power, but it's actually, wait a minute, this is not making me free. It's making me unfree. It's going to be making me addicted to something, right? Which is not freedom if you um, have a dependency on a substance. So, Pamela Perea, what is going on like there in New Mexico with getting more media literacy education? We are working with trying to get more media literacy into the schools. And that usually will take a political, you know, meaning like we will talk to legislators and talk to, you know, parents and grandparents and whoever wants to be involved. Let me ask you quickly, though, what are legislators and administrators scared of, concerned about, why do they not jump on this more quickly and say, yeah, I get it, 
let's go with it. Really, um, it's not a huge amount of people who are against it. There are concerns, and I think some of those concerns are that there, people are wondering what the content is going to be, what um, books or what's going to be chosen. But I think it, it could it, it could live in different ways, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's against corporate America or it's against. And I think people have different ideas around it, and it's not necessarily true that media literacy is always going to tackle, you know, very polarizing, you know, we're not in, it doesn't, like I said earlier, media literacy is not telling people what to think. It's just giving them time and space to think and to ask questions. So if we go at it from that perspective, which is totally aligned with the standards and benchmarks of say K through 12 education, critical thinking, And I think that's one of the reasons why we do have legislator support, but it's not comprehensive. We don't have a comprehensive plan for media literacy, say, across the state in K through 12 education. So we have to go back and and figure out, well, how can we have a comprehensive approach to media literacy across our state? What will it look like? And what about teacher training programs? Right. And what does that look like? And how are teachers getting trained to look at media literacy? I mean, it's going to take a whole community to figure that out. And therefore it's going back to the idea of having a comprehensive plan and having a media literacy committee where everybody's at the table um, to discuss all the different parts of what, what it could look like for this state, at least. Pamela Perea of Media Savvy Citizens. We have a link to their website on our November 2021 episode page for this show at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Also, you can hear the full interview I had with Pamela. Just click on her picture on that episode page, November 2021. In our time left, we're going to give our last words to Allison Butler. She runs the Media Literacy Show in the Department of Communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I asked her why, after nearly 30 years of an active media literacy education movement in the U.S., it is so hard still to get any of this content into U.S. classrooms. It's hard for for so many reasons. Nobody is going to advocate for illiteracy, right? Nobody is going to say, this is too difficult, so it's okay for us to be illiterate. But but to some extent, that is what's happening. You know, we have a state-by-state school system. We do have some federal policy and some uh, federal oversight. But for the most part, our schools in the United States are organized on a state by state basis, which means that there's not an overarching mandate um, across the United States. Mandates don't necessarily need to be met, right? I mean, there's something to be said for an unfunded mandate, which is do more with less. And that's going to be really hard for schools and for teachers. We also have a huge country, right? The, the, this, the sheer geography of our country is extraordinarily large and making a single policy for K through 12 education into higher education isn't feasible um, in a country of this size, right? And at some point in our education history, the United States decided to not have a national education system. I'm not saying that that would be a sol- like a best solution or a really good idea, but it, it, it starts to funnel the ways in which we start to see what comes into and goes out of our schools. We have schooling across the nation that is heavily reliant upon testing. And we look at testing as a sign of success. 
interestingly enough, we pretty much only test in English and math. So we're looking at success on two subject matters, not necessarily the breadth or the depth of what students are learning or what teachers are teaching. Media literacy isn't something that is easily tested, right? If we're talking about understanding, you know, a conceptual understanding of our media and explorations of the ebbs and flows of our society, that doesn't fit into a multiple choice test, right? There's, there's, it's a harder subject to test. It's also a subject that doesn't necessarily get learned instantaneously. Like I was saying before, that sometimes I'll have students email me years after graduation and be like, I just got this. Like I saw an example of everything we talked about in class and it just really hit home. Like, what do I do? Go back and change their grade? Like it's not something that can be, that is, has a formulaic uh, type of learning to it. Um, it's very threatening um, to, to explore the media is to explore a major source of power in our country. And that can feel really intimidating and really threatening. It opens up a sort of behind the curtains look at what goes on in our culture. And that can be problematic. Right. And, um, I, I mean, I'm a firm believer of bringing media literacy into K through 12 classrooms, but it puts us right at, um, the first obstacle, which is who's, who's got the expertise to teach it. So we also have to kind of take a step back and say, well, we also need to be teaching people how to teach media literacy, which brings it into higher education and particularly teacher education programs so that pre-service teachers have this as part of their education. We can't be asking our K through 12 teachers to do more. We can't ask them to do more during a school year. We can't ask them to take on an additional project. They're already doing so much and our teachers time as well as our students is is precious and if we're asking them to do it on off hours or at the end of the school year we're putting another burden on them that they've got enough burdens right and so if we make the learning of media literacy part of our teacher education programs then it becomes a part of what they're doing in their classrooms not separate from it's how they can infuse media literacy across all subject matters so we also need to think about what's a good starting point. And it's easy for me to say that it needs to start with a teacher education program, but it probably has to start before then because there then need to be resources and funding um, and somebody who can teach these folks how to teach it. So it's a rough, it's a rough topic to find an entry point and to find a starting point. Uh, and yet it's vital and necessary. And we really can't afford to spend too much more time talking about the value of it, we know there's value, right? We absolutely know there's value in media literacy education. We need to start making it part of the work that we do, K through 12, higher education, et cetera. Okay. And so people listening to this, if it resonates with them, if their parents or in their own community, where would they take a step, an activist step? And are there organizations nationally that are actively advocating that uh, our people, our listeners could connect with if it was a resonating topic for them? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you're, if you're a K through 12 teacher and you're looking to bring media literacy into your classroom, you want to get some ideas, um, you want it to be part of your school, I would recommend checking out. This is a little self-serving. This is a grassroots organization that I co-run called Mass Media Literacy. It's massmedialiteracy.org. Um, our work in that organization is helping teachers build curriculum and doing training models. Uh, if you're interested at the higher education level, um, I would recommend 
the Critical Media Project out of USC, which provides a lot of classroom examples of um, texts that you can bring into your classroom. That's designed, again, for more for higher education. The UCLA Media Literacy Group has a lot of fabulous resources. Again, that would probably be mostly for higher education. If you're looking at media literacy policy, if you're interested in saying that your state uh, should have a greater understanding of media literacy, I would recommend Media Literacy Now. If you're looking for more research um, and understanding of how media literacy sort of operates and came to be, I would check out the Action Coalition for Media Education. And if you're really looking to do some of the the groundwork is talk to your local schools, talk to your local community centers, talk to your local um, city council and say, we need to think about this, right? We need to start to make change because it's what, what we're looking at is the need for systemic and structural change, uh, but it's not going to start from the top down. Um, families and community members, go to your schools, go to your city council, say that this is something that's important, have them reach out to me, I'll send them to my colleagues, etc. It's, it's going to take a lot of work. There is work that is out there. Um, nobody has to start this completely in the dark on their own. There's a lot of great models out there. What we need to start doing is figuring out ways to make those models sustainable. Right. And we'll have links to all those mentioned by Allison Butler on our website. Also, just parenthetically, you don't have to be a teacher. If you're a parent, you could even just begin the conversation as best you can at home beyond saying no more screen time. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I had a teacher once who talked to us. He was a media teacher and his whole thing was, we're not going to turn the television off. We're going to keep it on, but we're going to talk about all of it. It kind of took the wind out of your sails of just sitting around and watching TV. Uh, but it became, and, and that's something that I learned and I, I bring certainly to my classroom and my students say all the time that like, they're, most of my students are communication majors, but they're not necessarily roommates with comm majors. So they'll be like, my biochem roommate hates me because I've ruined all these movies for them. And it's like, yep, sounds good to me, right? We just got to keep, keep asking it questions, right? One of the key ideas of critical media literacy of the work that we do is a process of continuous critical inquiry. Keep asking questions. For more from all of our guests, remember that it's the November 2021 episode that you're looking for at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. You'll see pictures, transcripts, and links to resources and organizations you can connect with to get more involved in media literacy, all at peacetalksradio.com. That's also where to go to hear all of the shows in our series and read more details about each dating back to our beginnings way back in 2003. You can also donate to our nonprofit organization to keep Talk of Peace on the air and in our earbuds into the future. We'd sure appreciate that help. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.